Well, Bertha Adams was a 71-year-old widow who died alone in West Palm Beach, Florida on Easter Sunday in 1976. The coroner's report listed her cause of death as malnutrition. When authorities made their preliminary investigation of Mrs. Adams' homes, they found things were piled everywhere. One seasoned inspector said he had never seen a dwelling that was in greater disarray. The woman had been known for begging food from her neighbors, the clothes that she had, she had gotten from the Salvation Army. And so by all accounts and all outward appearances, she appeared to be a penniless, forgotten widow. As they began to go through the things in her home, among the piles of things she had hoarded, they found two keys to safety deposit boxes at, a local, at two different local banks. When they went and opened the first box, it contained over $600,000 in cash. In the second box, they found over 700 AT&T stock certificates, as well as numerous other securities and bonds, and another $200,000 in cash. Between the two boxes, she had more than a million dollars piled up waiting to be used by her, and yet she died of malnutrition. The piles of money that Mrs. Adams had been holding on to could have been used for her good as well as to help countless others, but instead they were a tragic testimony to what happens when getting and holding on to things becomes the focus of our life rather than seeing and using them as the blessings that God means them to be. This is some of the things we're going to be looking at today as I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 5, where I want to read with you verses 1 through 6. In James 5, 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And right about now you're thinking, I am so glad I came to church to hear this wonderfully inspiring and feel-good message, right? Now, as we read this, what I want you to understand is James is not saying that it is a sin to be rich. The Bible is full of those who were rich and were greatly used by God. There was Abraham, there was Job, there was King David, there was Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, just to name a few. What the Bible is not speaking against is those who have wealth. What it condemns is those who trust in wealth rather than trusting in God. And here we see James is speaking about not only their misplaced trust in their wealth, but their sin of ill-gotten gain in the way that they were hoarding it and piling it up. As we see the words, you rich, you may be sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm off the hook, Roger, because I'm not that rich. So this really isn't a message for me. And if that's what you're thinking, first what I would tell you is there are things you can gain from looking at this passage. One of those is the understanding of the futility where we make the focus of our life trying to get more and pile up more and get richer and richer. That's one of the things that you can take from this. 
And in regards to being rich, even if you never make the Forbes list of the most wealthy in the world, may I remind you that all of us here today are on the list of the most wealthy in the world. If you were here back when we looked at James chapter 1 and verses 9 and following, what we saw there is that we are rich. We're rich, first of all, in regard to the blessings of God that we have been given, the spiritual blessings that are overflowing to us. But as we think in terms of worldly wealth, as James is speaking of here, we're still rich. Some of you will recall this slide that we looked at from the World Banking Organization, and it said if you make $20,000 a year, that's in combined household income, you are in the top 11.16% of the richest people in the world. And if you go down that chart, right at the $50,000 a year income level, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. Back in 1 Timothy 6, 8, we're told that if we have food and covering, with these we should be content. And so what that means, friends, is if you have something on your back this morning and something in your belly, that anything beyond that is a bonus. We are wealthy. So as James is writing this letter, it really applies to all of us. Remember that as he's writing in the first century, you can think back to the terms of things that people had in the first century. And if you took the wealthiest of the wealthy, those like the Roman emperor, those like the kings, do you realize they did not even have the luxuries that we have today? They didn't have flush toilets. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have central heating and air conditioning. They didn't have cars. Just on and on the list goes. All of those luxuries that we look at as just basics of life that we take for granted. We live in a day and age where we are among the wealthiest that the world has ever seen. Now, the reality is most of us are blessed with far more than we need. And we're in a position to bless others. As you look at what the scriptures tell us in 1 Timothy 6.17, it says, instruct those who are rich. Who are the rich? That's all of us. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Everything that we have comes from God. It is a stewardship given to us. He tells us that instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. As you think about those words, what is life indeed, those that James is referring to in this passage thought that life was about a bigger bank account. It was about getting more and more stuff. And what James is warning them of is that you will find the ladder that you have been climbing in this world is leaning against the wrong wall. And when you get to the top, it will lead to a pit of destruction. Now, I said those that James is referring to, not those that he is writing to. And I chose those words on purpose because the reason is here in James 5.1, we have what Greek grammar calls an apostrophe. Now, we know apostrophe is that kind of little mark we make above a, a word to hyphenate it or something, but that's not what an apostrophe is here in Greek grammar. An apostrophe is where you are addressing those who are not present for the benefit of those who are present. So as James is writing... You'll remember in chapter 1, verse 1, he said he was writing to the saints who were scattered, to the believers who were being persecuted. That's who the benefit is for, those who are present that are reading it. 
Uh, when we get down to uh, chapter, se- uh, chapter 5, verse 7, next week, you're going to see where he again addresses them as brethren. So he goes back to those that he's writing to. But right now he says, I'm talking about the unrighteous rich. Those that are not saved, those that are not present in the assembly, those that are not reading this letter. And he says, I'm doing it for your benefit. You see, as James writes, come now, you rich. It wasn't that he walked through the parking lot coming into church on Sunday morning and said, boy, I see some really nice cars sitting out here. I'm going to tell those people they're going to hell because they're wasting God's resource. That's not what it's saying. Remember, God is not against us having good things. It's just the understanding that those good things are given by God to be used for his purposes, for his glory. So as James is addressing the unrighteous rich, those that we saw back in James 2, 6, 7, were the ones who were dragging the Christians into court, those who were blaspheming the name of Christ. What he says is, what I want you to understand who are being persecuted. Look at verse 7 for a moment. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You see, these Christians were losing their homes, their businesses, some of them their lives. And what he was saying to them is, God knows what is happening. I want you to understand God sees it all. Have you ever sat in your living room here in our day and watched the news where the atrocities are taking place in northern Africa, in the Middle East, in China, and other places all around the world where Christians are being persecuted and murdered in North Korea and on and on the list goes? And you're going, where is God? What is God doing? And what God says to those in James' day and us today is, be patient, brethren. I see what is happening. And there is a day of judgment that is coming. As James speaks of this coming judgment, he's referring to these unsaved, wicked rich who are doing the oppression, the persecuting, all the things. And he tells them in verse 1, to weep and howl. The word weep means to weep bitterly, to sob aloud and lament. It was used of the grief shown at a funeral. It it was also used for weeping in shame and remorse, as you see in Matthew 26, 75, where Peter denied Jesus, and it says that he went out and he wept. The same word that is used. It's used in Luke 7, 38, where the prostitute wept over her sins as she anointed the feet of Jesus. It's a word that speaks of remorse and regret with the understanding of a wasted life. The word howling intensifies the scene of despair. It's used 21 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe the violent grief of those who stood face to face with God in their understanding that they were being judged for their sins and that it was too late. Now, as Christians, we don't need to fear this coming judgment that James is referring to because as believers, we will face another judgment. You see, the Bible tells us there are two judgments when life is over. One is called the great white throne judgment that you find in Revelation chapter 20. The great white throne judgment is where the non-believers of all the ages will stand before the throne and Jesus who is seated on it will send those who are there to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And it says he does that because as the book of life is open, their name is not written in it. They rejected the payment of death that Jesus made on their behalf. 
And so instead he opens the books, plural, as you see there in Revelation 20, where he judges their life works. And they say, look, God, I did all these great things, and that's why you should let me into heaven. And he says, I see that you sinned, which means you owe the penalty of death, and you rejected my death in your place. Therefore, you will pay the penalty yourself. Depart from me. And he sends them to the second death, the lake of fire. Now, as believers, we don't go before the great white throne judgment. Our judgment is what is called the Bema judgment seat of Christ. It's found in passages like 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Luke 14, 14 refers to, to the judgment. And these are the places where we as believers come not to be judged as to whether we get into heaven or not. That has already been decided. You see, our sins were judged on the cross of Christ. He paid that penalty in full. When you accept Jesus' payment... His death in your place, your ticket home to heaven has been purchased and cannot be lost. That passage makes clear in 1 Corinthians 3 that we build upon that foundation. We can lose our rewards, but not our entrance into heaven. The judgment for us is one where our life works will be placed into the fire. And the bad things will be burned up. The things that were wasteful in this world, the things that were not of eternal value will be lost. But the things that remain, the gold, the silver, the precious things, it says, will be taken out. And those will be the rewards. As you remember again back in James 1.9 when we had that sermon, you can take it with you. We talked about this extensively. So if you were not here, go back and review that message. But the picture here that James has for us is that we are not to to fear this judgment that is coming. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those who have received his death in their place, we have entrance into heaven based upon what he did for us, not our good works, but our good works will be judged. We will be held accountable for what we've done. Earlier in James 2.5, he told us that it was possible to be rich in this world and poor in the next. And it's possible to be poor in this world and rich in the next. It's not how much we have, it's what we do with what we have been given. Affluence is not a sin if you use it for God's influence, for his purposes. Now, as you think of your life, which one best describes the way you're living? Are you using the things that God has given to you for his purposes? Or are you piling them up for your pleasures? In Matthew six nineteen through 24, we're told, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those that James is writing about, those that he's referring to, their treasures were here on earth. They were storing up and amassing these things for their pleasures. In an ancient agrarian economy, wealth was measured by harvested crops, the clothing owned, and by precious metals. Those were the standards of wealth in that day. And here James tells us that all three of those things have been ruined. As they hoard them, as they pile them up, he he shows how it's ruinous to all three. Now, as he talks about the destruction of the things here, all three verbs are in what are called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense speaks of something as if it is already accomplished. Commentators call it the prophetic, prophetic perfect. It means that the ultimate results are so certain they are spoken of as already having occurred. 
Now, we've all heard of crops that spoil, right? You pile up food and it can mold and uh, it, can, it can rot and other things. We know that clothing can become moth-eaten. But does gold really rust? I mean, is this a, an error in the scripture? Now, some try to explain what James says here. He, uh, they will point out that in the ancient times that metals were not of the same purity like we have. And that often the alloys were mixed and as archaeologists dig up coins and things, they find these precious metals are rusting because there's impurities in, the, in with the, the other things like gold and silver. Others will point out that while real precious metals do not rust, they can become corroded. Gold can darken, silver can tarnish. Now while those things can certainly apply, I think there's a more jarring picture that James is trying to paint here. Because he uses a unique Greek word here, it's used only once in the entire New Testament right here. It's kataeo. And kataeo is a word that means rusted or corroded. But it's a compound word, that first part, kata, is a preposition that intensifies the meaning of the second word, which is ios. We saw this word back in James 3.8. It means poison or venom. And it was used of the destruction that our tongues can do. Do you remember how dangerous when our tongue gets loose, how, how it can poison and destroy? And what he is saying here is these riches have rotted in the sense that they have become ruinous. He, he goes on to talk about how their flesh will be destroyed by fire. Remember the image of our works being judged in the Bema seat where it's placed into the fire? What he says is on that judgment day, there will be a time when their works will be piled up and it will be the fuel to the fire that stands in testimony against them. As God looks and says, I gave you all of this and what did you do with it? And it will, it will be the very thing that is used as, as the, the judgment against them. Now, as we talk about our rewards here, we can, we can live our lives for our pleasures rather than using what God has entrusted for his purposes and glory. But it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the pleasures of this world. Please don't sit here this morning and think, oh my gosh, I've got to go sell my lake house, my, my cabin, that nice car. I've got to move out of that house into this shack. And I've got, I mean, this is a horrible Sunday to have come to church, right? <laughs> God is not saying you cannot enjoy the pleasures the fruits of your labors. In fact, the scriptures tell us this in Ecclesiastes 2.24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. This is King Solomon, the wisest and wealthiest man the world has ever seen, writing these words through God's Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, Ecclesiastes 3.13, Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. God wants you to enjoy the fruit of your labor. But what he wants us to understand is the stuff is not ours. He is the owner. We are merely managers of it. We are to take what has been entrusted to us and remember that it is a stewardship that belongs to God. Stewardship is where we recognize God is the owner. We are the managers who are to use those things according to the purpose of the owner. An example of somebody who understood this is a man by the name of R.G. Letourneau. Now, some of you will recognize the name Letourneau because of Letourneau University. 
a Christian college that has impacted the lives of thousands as they've been trained in trades. And, and as they, uh, it, it originally started out as a trade school that was developed to help people in the construction industry. And that's another reason some of you will recognize the name Laterno. If you've been in construction, you maybe have seen some of the things he invented. There's a couple of cat diesel tractors out here for our parking lot expansion going on. Those things are tiny compared to this thing. I mean, look at at this size of this machine. And Laterno was one who invented these earth-moving machines. And I wish we had time to go into the totality of this man's story who started out as a high school dropout at 14 doing labor and how God used him and built up a company through him. And as you look at the life of Laterno, he's a man that in the highs and lows of life, he trusted in God. And he always honored God in what he did. And as he walked closer and closer with the Lord, he came to a point where he thought, well, if you're really going to serve God, then you need to be a pastor or a missionary. And so he went to his pastor and he said, I I feel like God wants me to become a pastor or a missionary. And his pastor listened and prayed with him and said, what is driving you to this? And he said, well, isn't that what all devout believers do? And his pastor told him, he said, God needs godly businessmen as well. And that's what he's called you to. And Laterno went back and he said, I will run my company to honor Christ. And he did things like not working on Sundays. He paid paid fair wages to people. He conducted himself in the highest levels of integrity. And God continued to bless and bless his, his business. He would say, I shovel the money out the door and God shovels it back in. And he he would give 10% of his his income to the Lord, which was a massive amount of money. And there came a point in his life, he said, what am I doing? I'm going to become a reverse tither and I'm going to give away 90% of my income to God and live on 10%. And as he did so, he said, it's not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. It's not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. Randy Alcorn once said, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. As you look at your own life, are you one who recognizes as as Laterno and so many other godly men and women uh, through the years who have been blessed to, that it's not how much of God's money uh, I'm giving away, but it's how much of his money that I'm keeping? Now, I know many of you here at Wayside are generous in how you give to God. I know that because our church budget is, is fully funded. We're able to do all kinds of uh, things around the world through missionaries we support, through ministries here in the city that we're a part of. We're able to do much-needed things like the parking lot expansion. Uh, you maybe saw in your bulletin that in two weeks we're going to have a congregational meeting where we need to vote on an expenditure, an expenditure to buy another one of the Ivywood houses. Uh, Many of you know we own 10 of the 12 homes on this circle street out here. And one of the homeowners came to us and said in the next six months they're ready to sell their house. It's the one right outside the doors of the church here. And so we need to have approval from the congregation. And through your past generous giving, that future facilities fund that you see in there, we have been planning and preparing for this. Now there's another house beyond that as we use that resource. We'll need to replenish it for what we're praying will be the last of the homes that we may be able to purchase. We're able to do those things because of what you all do and your generous giving to God here. 
And it goes beyond big projects like that to little things that have huge impact. Recently, we did the kids' coats and can drive to uh, get clothes, uh, outer winter wear for the kids at Colonial Hills Elementary School, this partnership we have with a public elementary school. And you were generous again in giving to that. The home specialist there at the school was blown away. They were hoping that they could get maybe 40 coats, and you gave 85 jackets, many of which were brand new that you went to the store and bought, still had the tags on them. And they were blown away by the generosity, again, of this church reaching into uh, the needs in the community. And many of you are doing it right now as you're giving to the Heart of Christmas Outreach that is coming, the gift cards for these women that we're trying to serve, these underserved ladies in our community. And so these are the type of things that James is talking about. It's not the, it's, it's, he says you're not to have a heart that hoards, but it is a heart of giving. As James is talking about those who were hoarding, Jesus spoke against them as well. You'll recall the, the parable of, uh, well, no, don't leave yet. <clears throat> you can go back and take that slide down. Jesus talked about it as well in Luke chapter 12 and verses 16 through 21. It says, And Jesus told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Big problem. I had a bumper harvest. I don't even have any more storage left. So what does he do? He says, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Remember the hedonism that we saw recently that James spoke against? This is the guy. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's a guy who looked at what he had been given and he said, this is for me, myself, and I. And God said, you fool. That's not your stuff. It's mine. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take your life and now who gets to have all the stuff? You piled up. Now, friends, God is not trying to discourage us from saving. God is not one who says it's imprudent to put away things for a rainy day. As a church, we have a reserve fund for those times when there are hard things that happen. Praise God we had it back in 2008 when the economy fell apart and giving dropped off by $700,000 and it could have crippled and caused us to lay people off, shut down budgets, furlough missionaries, but we didn't do that because we had put away for those hard times and you should be doing the same thing. But there's a point in your life where you have to say, how much is enough? Do I really need to have this level of security and then that level and that level and that? And God says, what are you trusting in? He tells us in the scripture, look at the birds of the air. I feed them. I take care of them. What are you trusting in? Is it God or your stuff that you're piling up? And as you look at the stuff you're accumulating, do you realize it's not for our comforts and pleasures? It's for God's purposes. 
When we live like it's for us, he says in James 5, 5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The image he uses here is of those animals that are being fattened for slaughter. And they don't realize there is a day coming where they will be destroyed and their flesh will be consumed. As they gorge themselves on their pleasures, on what's put before them, there is a day of destruction coming. And not only will these wicked suffer destruction, but James says what you are doing is causing the destruction of the righteous. He says in verse 4 that you were guilty of destroying others as you increased your accounts at the expense of others. Look at what he says. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. The original audience, you remember James was writing to, were predominantly Jewish people who had become believers in Christ. So they had a full understanding of the Old Testament, imagery and illusions and stories and accounts. And as they hear James writing these words as they're read to them, the title, the Lord Sabbath, means the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. It was used in Isaiah chapter 2 of how God would come and he would march against the enemies of Israel and he would wipe out those who were oppressing them. As these persecuted Christians were suffering, the injustices that were happening in their day, they would have remembered as they heard this, this title for God, they would have said, you know, we remember when our people were slaves in Egypt. And it says the cries of the Hebrew slaves went up and they were heard by God and he redeemed his people, rescuing them through the exodus. And James was telling them, there is a day coming. There is a judgment for the wicked coming and there is redemption for you. As he speaks of the, the withheld wages of the laborers that are crying out from the bank accounts of the rich, they would have thought of the blood of Abel that cried out from the land in Genesis where God came and he said to Cain, where's your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? He said, the blood of your brother is crying out from the earth. As they were withholding these wages, the Old Testament repeatedly warned against defrauding workers or holding back their pay. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 tells us this. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. For he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. The harm that was being done went beyond the damage for a day. These laborers live hand to mouth. And he said, when you withhold their day's pay, they don't eat. But he said, you're going even further beyond that. He said, what you are doing in verse 6 is you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, some, the, the form there is singular when it says the righteous man. Some say, well, this is speaking of the death of Jesus. And it could be an allusion to him, but it, it is speaking of the poor as a singular class, and this one represents them. And what he says is you are going into the courts that you as the rich control, and you're defrauding the poor by taking their land. And as you take the land, which is how the poor make their livelihood by planting and harvesting crops, hand-to-mouth subsistence, and hoping to sell just a little off on the side, he says you take away their livelihood. And what you are doing is committing judicial murder. 
Because as you take their land, they can no longer support themselves. And then to add insult to injury, you're turning around and hiring them back as poor sharecroppers, paying them pennies for their work, and then on top of it, you're withholding their wage. And he says, beware. There's a day of judgment coming because the Lord sees it. He knows what you're doing. As you think about your own life, how do you treat others? If you're in a position where you pay others, ask yourself, are you paying them fairly? Do you pay them on time? If you're somebody who employs trades, do you try to cut corners on them or, or change the rates you pay them at the end or, or daub their work and say, well, this really isn't that great. I'm going to pay you less than I agreed on. Ask yourself if you're somebody that is being described in this passage. Those that James was writing to thought they were winning the game according to the world's rules. They were fattening their accounts. They were building their balances and everything they thought looked good. But God said, listen, I am the righteous judge and I am the auditor and I'm looking at the books. And there is a day coming when you will have a bill to pay that you cannot pay. And all your stuff you've piled up on earth, it's going to be worthless, friends. That will do you no good that day you stand before the great white throne judgment. Jesus isn't going to care who you are or what you have. He's going to want to know one thing. Did you receive the Lord? Did you accept his death as payment for your sins? And if you did not, he will say to you on that day, depart from me. Go to the lake of fire because I didn't know you. If you're here today and you've never received the Lord as your Savior, you can know today where you will go if you will turn from your sins and you will turn to Jesus to be your Savior. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now for the rest of us who are here that have received the Lord, what does it mean for us? As we stand before God on our judgment day, the question is not going to be whether or not you get into heaven. Jesus already paid the, the price. He redeemed us. The question will be, what will your rewards, your responsibilities look like in eternity? Let me illustrate it for you this way. <clears throat> Imagine that this rope represents time. And let's say it's an, it's an eternal rope, okay? It goes beyond uh, what I have here. There's a lot of rope here, but imagine that this is time. And this little black part right here is your life on earth. Do you remember where James told us last week that we are but a vapor? We're here today and poof, we're gone tomorrow. So let's imagine this is your life. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it 100 years. Some of us will have less than 100, but for illustration, let's say that you get a hundred years on the earth and this is it compared to eternity. And so some of you today are starting out. You're, you're near the beginning here. You may be in your teenage years. You may have maybe hit 20, 30, 40, the midpoint mark of 50. And you're saying, keep going, Roger. <laughs> 60, 70, 80, maybe 90. So that means you have a lot less time left here on earth. And what God is saying to you today is, how are you spending this? Is it all about piling up stuff for you? In light of eternity, do you really think this is what it's all about? Being fat and happy for a hundred years? Because he says when our time here on earth is over, guess what? A hundred years into eternity, right about here, 
What you did with this will determine your rewards and your responsibilities in heaven. In the time when the millennial kingdom comes, the dividends will be getting paid on what you did with your your dash, your hundred years here. And then he says, a thousand years in. A hundred thousand years in. Maybe a million years in, you're still getting dividends on your hundred years. A hundred million years in. What did you do with your life? Friends, what, what is the better investment? This or this? God says to us today, decide what you will do with your life. Decide what you'll do with the resources I gave to you because I will be paying dividends for all eternity. Remember the Bema judgment seat? It's determined on what we did with what he gave us, our time, our talents, and our treasures today. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we ask that you would keep us from being so blinded by the bling of this world the earthly treasures, the possessions that we have in front of us that cause us sometimes to fail to see eternity, to see the long-term view. Father, would you help us to see the things that really count, people and your purposes. Forgive us when we've worked for greed and gain, Help us, Lord, to live a life that fulfills your purposes rather than our selfish pleasures. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.